0: First instance is really understanding what a day in the life of the customer is like, right? And really by asking open-ended questions, solicit what are the biggest pain points and the biggest aspirations that uh, some of them may have, right? And based on that, consider what role might our product or technology play in helping with their own aspirations, right? And I think that that human-centered kind of mindset is not only... I mean, what I found is it's not just for kind of acquiring customer, it's a new way of interacting with the world.
1: You're listening to Curious Minds, a podcast aimed at the next generation of aspiring young entrepreneurs, innovators, and change makers. We release new episodes every month discussing career insights, entrepreneurship, and the most exciting emerging technologies today. Today, we're talking with Kevin Kung, an MIT-trained engineer with a physics background who's researching decentralized biomass processing and upgrading in remote areas to help us move towards greener agtech systems.
2: He's co-founded and invested in a myriad of biomass companies and is an avid supporter of biomass innovations. As a social entrepreneur, Kevin values global impact and is dedicated to positively impacting underserved agricultural regions. All right. Kevin, thanks again for appearing on the Curious Minds podcast. It's great to have you here.
0: It's my honor to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, so our first question of the day, can you tell us a little about your background and the work you're currently focused on?
0: Yeah, so right now I am the chief technology officer of a startup company called Takachar, and our work is to turn crop and forest residues, um, which we call biomass, into higher-value uh, Bioproducts um, such as fertilizers, chemicals, and biofuel. And this work actually came out of my own uh, university research um, at MIT, where I did my PhD, and kind of I spent it out of the university after I graduated. And um, yeah, that's something we have been working to scale, both in Canada, uh, US as well as in other countries.
1: That's wonderful. Do you mind telling us a bit more about the work that you did at MIT, maybe what you focused on, how you got into that field?
0: Yeah, I first started probably around 10 years ago. uh, At that point, um, I was mostly interested in um, kind of developing small-scale portable and decentralized um, technology, right? And the reason for doing that is because a lot of the times, crop and forest residues are very loose, wet, and bulky, which makes them very difficult and expensive to collect and transport to a centralized place uh, for any kind of conversion, right? So many, if you're if you're living in a rural community, for example, you're often shut out from the benefits of the bioeconomy and excluded from participation because it's too expensive to transport the residues. Um, and your only recourse is to burn such residues in open air which not only creates significant air pollution, but in some cases, such as all on the West Coast, also can exacerbate wildfires. Um, so the initial concept is to deploy a fleet of small-scale, low-cost portable systems that can latch onto the back of tractors and pick up trucks and deploy to rural hard-to-access regions to locally upgrade and densify the residues on site into higher-value bioproducts, such as chemicals, biofuels, and fertilizers. This was supported by uh, the Tata Trust uh, in India. and as, as a result, we have I did a lot of uh, field work there. And after I graduated, uh, this seemed like a compelling um, story. and I know that if I continued into academia, uh, this might have just sat on the lab shelf. So we decided to spin this out to see whether we could bring into the real world.
2: That's really cool. I'm curious. What really got you focused in like improving um, sustainability in the agriculture sector? Is there a particular experience, event, or program that kind of sparked your interest?
0: I mean, I grew up in Taiwan and actually right next to a rice field. So oftentimes, I still remember after harvest, um, the farmers will kind of set their field on fire. Right? It's, uh, it creates a pretty uh, unique type of smell. Right, that still stays with my kind of childhood memories even today, as nostalgic. But in reality, is that it made a lot of people sick, including my people in my family. Right. So um, after I got to, I immigrated to Vancouver, Canada, um, yeah, I mean, reason in recent years, unfortunately, due to the wildfires, a lot, a lot, a lot of that uh, air pollution has returned. Right. So I think for me, uh, a lot of it is to look at. Um, how can we actually uh, make use of the a lot of the agricultural and forestry residues that actually underlie uh, a, a large part of the problem and thereby also improving air quality at the same time, uh, removing um, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere.
1: Well, first of all, I definitely admire that you're a very impact-driven person and that you saw a problem that was bothering you and the people around you and then you went straight to try and tackle it on your own, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, So now if we're pivoting a bit more to the work that your startup is doing, can you tell us about maybe some of the challenges that you faced on your journey to get your startup off the ground?
0: Yeah, there are probably too many challenges to really enumerate here, um, but I can just briefly break them up into different categories, right? Um, I mean, initially, when I was working my PhD work, a lot of my preoccupation was on the technology, right? I.e., that's technology work right? Experiments will fail, right? And I mean, we did have experiments and reactors that burned down and we had to rebuild and redesign things from scratch. So those are the realities of things when you are working um, with a kind of a science project. Um, But once I started building a company, I realized that the challenges grew multidimensionally, right? So there's a technical challenge, but there's also more on the market side, right? I mean, if you build a perfect product even if it's perfect, uh, will people actually want to buy it, right? And in many, many cases, um, there's that lack of product market fit, right? So for us, we spend a lot of time doing customer discovery and kind of redefining what a customer wants and what our product should look like uh, in light of what they tell us, right? And there are also other risks, including financing, how do we not run out of money, and also team, right? As we grow, we need more people to help us do things and sometimes it's um, a not easy to um, hire for the right people and b um, also kind of managing a growing team is something that a lot of us are doing for the first time in our lives so frankly we're also kind of learning on the fly.
2: Totally those are definitely important things to keep in mind as running a company can be very multi-dimensional so a really important aspect is keeping up with all the domains whether that's financing the product market fit prototyping etc um now i want to pivot a little so i was wondering if you have a patent for technology if not do you plan to eventually why or why not
0: yeah we do on certain aspects of the technology we did file patents on on them and but what we found out is that i mean intellectual property is a much broader I mean kind of a family of things which you develop eventually one of which is patent you can also have trade secret or brands right so I think it's really a combination that kind of makes a business work um, and kind of make kind of yourself unique.
1: Personally do you think that having a patent for your current business model makes more sense than not and do you think it's a a more positive thing?
0: Patent is a tool right so it's useful in some contexts for example if you are working with a large corporation and essentially you want to negotiate things with them and you are worried that they might um, just kind of replicate and take your ideas away. Right. I mean, it's a great way to enforce potentially against that against small copycats entirely useless, right. Especially in, 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 rural communities. So, I mean, it's a tool, right. And um, we invest some amount of money on it. Right. But, I mean it's a finite resource right so we cannot just invest into patent in in kind of infinitely right but kind of just understanding what how it's useful right and uh, in, in some cases it can be really useful and good in other cases not so much
1: 100 um do you think building a company from the ground up will get easier for future generations over time or do you think lack of investments for startups specifically ag tech startups Will make it more and more challenging to get something off the ground for future founders.
0: You know, I just speak from the data point of one. Right. I mean, I I mean, I hardly have founded more than one company, so it's hard to for me to extrapolate the trends. But at least based on personal experience, um, as well as experience of some of my colleagues and um, mentors who have done this before, I don't think uh, starting a company at any point is easy. Right. Um, and it's. I think it has always been difficult, and it will always be difficult to bring new innovation into the world because change is takes a lot of time and effort and thoughtfulness, right? So um, that's always going to be the case.
2: Yeah, totally. And it also kind of depends on like the timing and the product market fit and the problems that are kind of arising in like the current um, society. So kind of have to go with the um, trends. Um, and so do you think there are like, any ag tech specific challenges that aren't spoken about as much?
0: Well, so, I mean, let's just talk about some realities, right? Number one is that agriculture takes a long time because you cannot speed up any experiments you do, right? If you plant something and if you do a randomized control trial in the field, well, it takes a few months for the crop to grow, right? If something goes wrong, it takes another few months to fix it. And if you miss a planting w- window, well, you have to wait for the next one, right? So those are the things which had a lot of time to actually validate something in AgTech, right? When it comes to crop crop performance and intervention, right? Because you kind of are at the mercy of the planting season, right? And I think AgTech is also challenging because there are many, many different factors that affect how things work, right? For example, we had a field trial in 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 India, right? And one year there was a pest and it wiped up everything uniformly, both the control as well as the uh, intervention, right? So, I mean, there, there are always unpredictable things like that, that can kind of come into experiment, right? And there really isn't a way for you to control that.
1: Another thing that you may or may not have something to say on is, or to speak about is um, adoption barriers, especially in more developing countries, we might see people more hesitant to adopt certain new types of technologies. Um, do you have anything you might want to add to that?
0: Indeed. And I think a lot of the cases, especially in more marginalized communities, often uh, what you find is that a lot of the farmers and local stakeholders are, they have been pitched many uh, prom- potentially promising interventions uh, or requests, right? And a lot of those don't get followed through or don't work or break down, and there is no uh, maintenance, right? And there's a lot of wariness for um, any kind of new intervention, right? So, and adding to that is essentially a lot of the times so what we ended up doing is kind of we have to find a local champion who kind of believe in the product and is an early adopter and do a trial, right? And that takes a whole planting season, right? And. When they are kind of very happy with the result, oftentimes they actually spread it to the other farmers run by word of mouth. That takes another planting season, right? So even even that act, it can take two to three years.
1: I see. And the social structure of um, where you're choosing to implement it is obviously, um, you know, the social environment is obviously another thing. Um, Another thing that comes to mind is possibly mindset um, of the people around. From a mindset standpoint, what are two things you think are helpers to getting a company up and running? And what do you think are things that limit the probability of success for a startup?
0: I think those are two sides of the same coin, right? And I think one thing I learned in my startup journey is kind of this this whole idea of human-centered design and, and discover and thinking, right? Because back then when I was at MIT as a PhD student, I mean, it's it's really easy for technologi- te- technologists to fall into the trap and kind of fall in love with your own technology, right? And with, with or without kind of um, validation in the real world. And I took a course called iCore, uh, which essentially it trains. I mean, it's founded by the government agency because they are used to funding a lot of um, research that researchers just ended up building something that nobody wants. So they are saying, well, let's put taxpayer money to better use by actually having those researchers go out into the real world and talk to real people and find out what people want, whether people, organizations, or partners, and then define um, kind of requirements um, for engineering based on that. So I think that became a very uh, important and central um, mindset for the company, right? Because when we go out to potential customers, we don't sell them anything right i mean our kind of engineers and employees are forbidden from talking about our technology in the first instance the first instance is really understanding what a day in the life of the customer is like right and really by asking open-ended questions solicit what are the biggest pain points and the biggest aspirations that uh, some of them may have right and based on that consider what role might our product or technology play in helping with their um with their kind of own aspirations right and i think that that human centered kind of mindset is not only i mean what i found is it's not just for kind of acquiring customer it's a new way of interacting with the world right for example nowadays when i hire people like in my own company it's not necessarily about what the company wants them to do but what their own aspirations are and what the company can do to help them achieve that full potential, right? So it does also build into kind of team building and also other domains um, in the life.
2: Yeah, totally. I think the main takeaway here is to kind of look at your technology at a macroscopic view and holist- holistically looking at like what jobs are to be done by your technology or what kind of lifestyle or um, experience you're kind of trying to sell to really target the products
0: that's right and the reality is nobody care about your technology right it's people care about what it does and how it can how it can change their life but the exact way to do it i mean it's more like a black box
2: yeah totally um so my next question is if you could go back in time what words of advice would you give your younger self
0: well um be, I mean, I think what I will say is be more focused and that's some. another word of advice I will still give to my present self as well, right? Because I think in a startup, it's very tempting to be pulling all different sorts of directions because we get inbound requests from different uh, potential partners and customers and a lot of them may be divergent in nature, right? So it takes a lot of discipline to really say, this is relevant, and this is something I will deprioritize, right, and, and kind of not serve everyone who comes to your table, because if you do that, then you are serving no one.
1: Definitely. Um, now moving on a bit, if you were to put aside all those lists out there, that say why startups fail and speak completely from your own personal experiences, what do you think are the biggest reasons why startups fail?
0: I am really not uh, an expert in that. Um, I mean, I, I can talk from my previous experience, right? I mean, I was involved in a previous startup um that was essentially turning kind of um uh sugarcane bagasse into kind of a cooking fuel briquette, right? And we were trying to sell that uh with um with kind of um as a cooking fuel for the domestic use, right? So at that time, we had kind of two potential markets. One is kind of the um, urban kind of kind of a domestic market, which are kind of poorer households. It is in Kenya, by the way. And it, the second is more of institutional, uh, which are larger schools that buy in larger volume, but they have lower kind of um, uh, price point than the urban households, right? But what we ended up finding is that it took a lot of work to distribute to the urban households and um, to sell to the institutions. Really, we could not make the economics work. So I think for a lot of the cases here is that there is a lot of moving parts in the sale, right? I mean, to these customers and the price points that they wanted to pay. And even the details are just transportation because we move uh, the the solid fuel of our production site to the customers part of it does break on the lorry and once it does it's useless right so all those details kind of add up and conspire to turn something that otherwise would have been economical to something that would not right so i think a lot of the cases um as entrepreneurs we go in with kind of a rosy view of well if i build this people will come but a lot of the times the devil is in the details right and it's working on the detail that will force you to confront kind of, I mean, or admit that maybe the first iteration of the business is not viable, right? Then it's kind of up to you to figure out, well, can I pivot to something else? And if not, then yeah, I have to vote, right?
2: For sure. And speaking of pivoting, was there ever a moment um, where you had kind of doubt in your startup's mission and how did you overcome it? So we have like like the four, cycles, uh, the four stages of a business cycle are like expansion, peak, contraction, and trough. So what would you say was the trough for your business and how did you overcome that?
0: Yeah, so I think in the early days, um, I mean, we actually, I mean, when I was doing my uh, own work, I mean, it was not clear what we were actually even building that could add value, right? It took us a while to figure out. Right. Because I mean, in in my field at least, which is to kind of a thermochemical conversion of biomass, I mean, people have been building technologies for decades. Right. So there is really limited amount of um, hardware innovation that we can make uh, on kind of uh, on the existing landscape. So I mean, we struggled a lot just to say, well, why? I mean, why do we even exist? Right, if we if we are just making kind of charcoal from one waste, and it did, I mean, it was also part of the customer discovery process, right? Kind of actually going out and into the real world and talking to actual customers, that really gave us an aha moment, uh, because when we actually talked to a few processors of biomass, we found out that logistics is the universal problem that they faced, right? And that's when we realized that most most of the biomass facilities are large scale and centralized, right? And where we think uh, our niche may be is that kind of a small scale decentralized conversion, right? So I mean, a lot of those, I mean, whenever, now, nowadays, at least my golden rule is that whenever I feel I'm in mean, doubt or um, I'm not sure where to continue, then I think the best course of action is to go back and reconnect with the customers.
1: Definitely. And just tying that all together, I think something that you mentioned that's really very valuable is the fact that a lot of people think that they have to go into the world of business and have this new groundbreaking idea. But I think a lot of times what happens is you just work on something that you care about, a problem that you're passionate about, and then you eventually figure out a new angle or something that nobody's considered before. And then it sort of develops itself if you're truly passionate about what you're doing which i think is very beautiful Mm -hmm. Um, speaking of exciting things that are going on in the industry right now can you tell us about some recent innovations in the biomass processing space if there happen to be any that excite you
0: you know one thing which um that's relatively intriguing uh, at least over the past uh year or two um or three is kind of i mean we start seeing the carbon market take off i mean kind of carbon removal of credit and and uh i mean so you start having those um um uh, transactions uh by buyers like microsoft Stripe, and so forth and for biomass this is really uh interesting and potentially exciting right because i mean we started 2018 and back then we built our initial pilot with the assumption that uh, there's no carbon credit right we're just going to process the biomass waste and produce the product that's going to be sold at a price higher than the cost of production and in some communities that actually worked, right so we did have a um, i mean we still do have a pilot that um that's uh, kind of financially self-sustaining without carbon credits but you, you realize that biomass is very context dependent so in one place that works, there will always be a few places that don't, and a lot of it is because of the unit economics or the pricing, right? And I think um, with a carbon credit um, being added to the piece, now if you actually can through a process uh, remove or at least avoid um, carbon kind of captured by the biomass going back in the atmosphere and claiming part part of that as a credit, it actually fundamentally transforms um, many business models, right? We actually even have examples in the industry, in the biomass industry nowadays, that just purely relies on carbon credits. For example, taking biomass and making it into bio oil and just pumping it underground without selling it, uh, selling the oil, right? I mean, that is just based on the sale of the carbon credits by proving that it's gonna stay underground for millions of years. yeah, so I think at least it's an intriguing uh, new development and certainly something that's worth considering in the biomass sector.
2: Yeah, for sure. That's a great step towards a sustainable future. Um, and so speaking of innovations in the agtech industry, if you could describe the future of agriculture in just a few sentences, what would that look like and why? Like, um, Or what do you think are missing in the agriculture industry, that would be great if we could develop a solution for.
0: Um, This is my personal opinion, right? At least based on what I have seen of agriculture, it's fairly context dependent, right? I.e. each location, you have different uh, soil condition, uh, you have different crop types, and you have different unit economics for agricultural inputs, such as fertilizers and seeds, right? So it's a fairly difficult kind of uh thing to optimize for um i mean at at least historically one thing which we've been trying to do uh, with our equipment is to um kind of be able to know what's coming into the um, reactor the type of biomass and knowing the local soil and crop conditions actually customize the reactor in real time to give you an optimized uh, fertilizer blend specifically for that farm Right, And that's an area where I think there is a lot of potential uh, for the future of agriculture uh, to be is to be more kind of, I guess, what people call precision agriculture, right? To be able to say, well, how can we use uh, data and better planning to kind of streamline um, the whole operations and potentially even use some of that to plan for more regenerative uh, practices and kind of, for example composting or biochar or other uh, practices that can not only result in short-term but also longer-term health of the of the farm
1: i see lots of interesting stuff that our listeners can probably look into on their own time if they feel like it um now since we are nearing the end of our episode do you have three key takeaways that you want our listeners to walk away with today
0: three key takeaways uh, what I will say, I guess, since this is a startup theme, I will just say number one is uh start early, number two is start often, and third is start now. And maybe let me substantiate that a bit. So we'll start early because I think a lot of the times it's I mean it's tempting for me also to just build things and delay the prototyping phase because I thought, well, what I'm building is not perfect, it still breaks all the time and nobody will like it. Well, the thing is that if a customer really want something, they won't care. If it's kind of broken half of the time, they will want it, right? So even starting early and kind of traveling things early with customers and end users, that saves a lot of time and grief uh, from our experience. And I start often because a lot of the times the first idea that came to me is often kind of terrible, right? And it requires much more extensive brainstorming and kind of iteration to make that work, right? So kind of doing that often with throwing different ideas throwing different things on a ball, I mean, so on, on a wall and see which sticks. Right? And I think that's often where you might hit a home run and actually get a product that um, that's going to be a um, kind of a uniform. And start now is more kind of in a sense that stars will never align from my experience. Like there's never the perfect time to launch something or start a project. There will always be reasons against it, right? But you kind of have to find
1: reasons for it. One hundred percent. I think if you just delay something for all of eternity, like it's it's never gonna happen. So you definitely have to be the one to to just get out there. You know, your first time is probably gonna suck. It no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're building, no matter what you're creating. So I, I really love that way of looking at things—just jumping in head first and not being afraid.
2: Yeah, totally. Exactly. That. Bias towards action mindset is really important in the startup world, so that you can get things out, trial and error.
0: Yeah, and I think for me, it's more now. It's looking at experiments, right? I mean, how can I plan experiments and do this and learn something from it? And if you start looking at it more objectively, then I mean, it's it's less about kind of failure as a personal thing, but more about well, this didn't work. What should I do next to make it work?
2: Yeah, totally. Every failure is part of the success journey. Um, I think that's a great way to end off our episode. So, thank you so much, Kevin, for coming. We really enjoyed talking with you.
0: Likewise. Uh, It's my honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.